Union Grove Baptist Church, thanks for joining us, those that are here. And if you're watching online, thanks for tuning in. We're going to start off with prayer and then uh, get into our report tonight. And later we'll be in Acts chapter 20 to continue our study in the book of Acts. But let's pray first, ask the Lord to bless the time and to be with us and meet with us uh, this evening. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you that it gives us answers for what we're seeing going on in, uh, across the planet today as we see different events unfolding. Uh, help us just to continue to uh, pursue Christ in all that we do and say, and I just pray that we uh, trust your word, know that you have the answers, you have the truth and wisdom for us to live our lives practically and as we look toward the future. And we just uh, ask you to bless our night. Please be with us. Help us to be sensitive to the Spirit as he might speak to us through your word, or he will speak to us through your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we're going to get into this uh, one. I have one story, one uh, uh, news uh, comment, if you will, um, article. That's the word I was trying to come up with. Uh, one news article to talk about tonight in regards to things going on globally. And then we'll get into uh, Acts chapter 20, which I know Pastor Rich started last week, so we'll pick up where he left off. And so we'll be looking at this, uh, remembering uh, as we look at Revelation, we see things that will happen, uh, but we know that right now uh, we're living in, quote, the last days, uh, from the, the days of the apostles till now, that word days kind of used, stretched out, think of it, over the last 2,000 years, um, the last period of time before uh, the tribulation, and then before Christ's kingdom will literally be set up here on earth. And so um, 2 Timothy 3 one reminds us of that. So here's the, the headline. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is rewriting the Bible. So this is not super new, um, but it's one of the options Pastor Rich left me to look at, and I thought, let's, let's talk about this one. How many have seen this article or heard about this? Okay, about half maybe, okay. So we'll talk about it a little bit more tonight. Um, this is an opinion piece out of Fox News. Uh, the, the subheading there, the gospel according to Chairman G has Jesus turn killer instead of forgiving sin. So I'm going to read little bits of this and then we'll talk about it. We'll go to some scripture um, that helps us understand how are we supposed to look at this uh, through biblical worldview. That's the point of this. Um, global update is not just to inform ourselves of what's going on, but to then look at it through the biblical lens and have a biblical worldview. Um, so let me just read parts of this and um, then we'll discuss it. As a part of a push to cynicize religion, cynicize meaning to make Chinese in character or form, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has embarked on a 10-year project to rewrite the Bible and other religious texts. So it's not just the Bible they want to rewrite. It's many different religious texts. The Quran is included and others. Um, let me give you the example here. So in the Gospel of John, uh, and many of you will remember this account out of the Gospel of John, if you remember, Jesus famously confronts the accusers of a woman caught committing adultery. How many remember that from Gospel of John? Okay, we're all on the same page there. 
saying, this is what Jesus said in, in the actual Bible, let the one among you who is guiltless be the first to throw a stone at her. So it's a little bit of a paraphrase uh, translation he's reading from, but that is basically what Jesus says. To all the Pharisees standing around, they have the stones in their hands. They're ready to stone her to death. They're using this as a ploy to trap Jesus. It's an entrapment um, attempt on their part. And that's Jesus' response. Whoever has never sinned can be the first one to throw the stone. Of course, they all, their hearts are immediately pricked and they know that they stand guilty before God. And so I'll keep reading here uh, from the piece. The chastened accusers slink away and Jesus says to the woman, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go away and from this moment sin no more. So Jesus was not okay with her sin. He actually tells her, stop doing that. But he gives her forgiveness because her heart was looking for forgiveness. So again, a beautiful story of forgiveness and mercy unless you're a CCP official, then it's a story of a dissident challenging the authority of the state. So you see how they're rebranding Jesus, putting him in their image as the state, the head, um, the dictator, if you will. Um, A possible sneak preview of what a Bible with socialist characteristics might look like appeared in a Chinese university textbook in 2020. So again, this is not new information. They've been working on this for some time, um, and that little excerpt is um, possibly like a sneak peek at what they would do with the Gospel of John. Um, The rewritten Gospel of John excerpt ends not with mercy. Now here's how it ends but with Jesus himself stoning the adulterous woman to death. That's how that excerpt ends. And we're all just shaking our heads. No, that's not what Jesus did. Um, Of course not. So across Henan province, local CCP officials forced Protestant churches. This is another example of rewriting the Bible. Okay, what I'm about to read. They forced Protestant churches to replace the Ten Commandments with... uh, um, Xi Jinping quotes. So instead of thou shalt have no other gods before me, it became resolutely guard against the infiltration of Western ideology. So they're saying you can have your Ten Commandments, they just better be my Ten Commandments. Uh, At the 19th Party Congress, Chairman Xi declared, we will insist on the sinicization of Chinese religions and provide active guidance. I like how they, man, it's such a soft sounding term. Active guidance, right, a knife in your back for religion and socialism to coexist. Religion and socialism to coexist. Interesting. Um, It's not about coexisting. It's about conformity. That's what they're after. Um, And then the writer of this um, article goes on to say, let me translate, Xi Jinping has no problem with the first commandment just so long as he and the CCP are playing the role of God. So that's what he's looking for really is to usurp the authority of God. That's the purpose in doing this. Here's another piece of the purpose. Religion's power is tantalizing to the CCP. What better demonstration of party supremacy 
than bringing global religions to heel. So think about what this man, what he's actually trying to do. They're trying to take power away from God. It's not going to work. That's what they're trying to do. So if Jesus is the one that the Christians in China are following, the plan here is simply create a new Jesus, one that would stone the woman to death instead of forgive her. Um, you, you think about what's going on with Christians right now in China. Are they able to do what we're doing tonight freely? No. They're being ex- extremely harshly persecuted. But the true believers, when faced with the choice between death and life, if they'll give up and disclaim Jesus Christ, they're choosing death. That is power. That is power. You're threatening, the the CCP officials, the Chinese government is threatening Christians with the greatest possible threat, the end of their life. And they're saying, kill me, do torture me, whatever, I am not going to turn against and deny my Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is competition for the Communist Party. That is competition for power. Um, So if the faith of the Bible causes such deep dedication and conviction, it removes the power of the Communist Party. They can't hold a gun and say, do what we want like they're used to doing. Okay, okay, we'll do what you want. That's power, that's control, okay? They're doing that to Christians, and Christians are saying, shoot away. Do do your worst. I'm not going to deny Christ. They can threaten death. They still don't get what they want. And I believe, and according to this article, they're saying that is part of the reason why they want to rewrite the Bible. They're attempting to go to the source of faith to usurp its power, and be able to control Christians. If you can control the Bible, you can control Jesus, then you can control believers. I I believe that's the plan that they're doing. Um, I'll read a little bit more from the article. The CCP wishes for there to be nothing higher than their authority and views love for anything besides their Marxist-Leninist regime with vicious jealousy. In an interview with the Guardian, the pastor of one Chinese church stated, in this war, in Xinjiang, in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Chengdu, all these cities in China, the rulers have chosen an enemy that can never be imprisoned, the soul of man. That pastor is right on. They're trying their best to become God over these people. The pastor ended with an assessment that we must, now here's where I I take exception with this article. This article, um, actually written by Republican Mike Gallagher, who represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, is the author of this article. And this is what he says. The pastor ended with an assessment that we must make come true. The PRC rulers are doomed to lose. Now, I get what he's trying to say there. He's coming at it from a political standpoint. We have to do sanctions. We have to try to uh, um, make, make things happen on a political level. 
But we're looking at this from a spiritual level. I would agree that they're doomed to lose, but not because of politics, because of the fact that God's word cannot be destroyed. It, it can't really be altered. You can print words and put it in a cover and bind it and put Holy Bible on there. That, that, that does not change God's word. That does not change what God's word says. So let's look at a few verses um, about this so we can think about this again with a biblical worldview. It doesn't matter who's trying to do it. It could be the Chinese Communist Party here, like in this, in this um, instance, or it could be any government. It could be any individual trying to rewrite the Bible. How would we respond biblically? Well, let's look first um, at Revelation 13, 15, um, where it talks about the image of the beast. Pastor Rich and I just did several, uh, recorded several episodes of Prophecy Focus based on this. This was kind of our main key text. And it says that he, speaking of the false prophet, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should, not, should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And um, the way we were, we were looking at it, more of the power of the image of the beast, and those episodes are coming up on Prophecy Focus and looking at the uh, possible use of AI technology to cause this to happen. But I'd like to focus tonight on the word I've underlined, which is what? Worship. Worship. This is about controlling worship. That's what they're actually trying to do, trying to rewrite the Bible. So we're watching the events happen today. I believe these are forerunners of what will be happening in the future, but on a much greater scale. So right now we have this particular issue that's happening, it's unfolding in China. In the tribulation, this kind of thing will be happening on a global scale. The false prophet will somehow give power to this image that will demand worship or death. In a sense, it's the same thing that enemies of the gospel, enemies of the church have demanded ever since the church was started, starting with some of those Jewish leaders that demanded stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And the Roman emperors like Nero and others stop uh, sharing the gospel, stop talking about a different king. I'm the king, I'm the God, you can't worship him. Either you renounce your faith or you go face the gladiators, go face the beasts in the Colosseum. And it's just continued down through the last 2,000 years, nothing new, just uh, a different face, if you will. And the, the, the crux of the issue is worship or death. Worship what we want you to worship or we're going to take your life. And so this attempt to control worship is exactly what they're doing, rewriting the Bible. They're attempting to try to change the word of God. Now, something that comes to my mind often as we think about this is the, the skeptics and um, atheists and those that consider, <clears throat> excuse me, consider the Bible to be um, to totally wrong. They totally reject God's word. They make certain accusations about the Bible. Uh, they'll say things like, it's just a book of myth. It's just a bunch of ancient writings written down by ignorant Bronze Age uh, nomadic shepherds 
that just recorded things down and wrote things down and things got changed over the centuries and we can't trust it. Well, if that's true, why does it matter if people have a Bible or not? If it's just written down a bunch of myths that don't really matter and these things never really happened the way the Bible says they happened, then what, what's different between this and um, a fairy tale book or our children's nursery rhyme book? Why is this book being outlawed if it's just a bunch of myths? The fact is there's an enemy behind all this. He knows this is not just a book of myth. He knows that this is the power. This is the sword of the spirit. This is the message that changes hearts and lives and takes control away from him. And so uh, we see these kind of arguments falling short. Uh, The point is changing God's word has been Satan's ploy ever since the Garden of Eden. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Genesis 3. We're going to read a few verses from there. And compare it to the headline we just looked at. What is the Chinese government trying to do? They're trying to rewrite the Bible. They're trying to attack the word of God. Watch what the devil does in the form of a a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 down through verse 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Did Jesus really forgive that woman that was caught in adultery? Don't you think in his righteousness, he would have been the one to throw the first stone? After all, he's the one that has never sinned. So shouldn't he be the one to do that by his own words? You see how it's just twisted? Oftentimes, Satan doesn't take the Bible and like, totally change it. He just turns it about a quarter turn, enough to make it sound like the real thing, but it's not. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So already now Eve is starting to twist God's word. He never commanded Adam not to touch the tree. He commanded him not to eat of the tree. Verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You can trust the Bible written by the CCP. It's totally trustworthy. Just take our word for it. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is holding out on you. Let me open your mind to more truth. Let me expand your knowledge. God is only giving you this small portion. There's so much more and you could be like God. The thing that Eve forgot was that she was already like God. What did... The Trinity say, let us make man in our own image. They were already made in the image of God, living in perfect harmony with him. They lacked nothing. They had everything they needed, everything they really wanted because they had no sin. They didn't want anything bad. They were completely cared for. But Satan took God's word 
and twisted it just enough to make them think they were missing out on something. And of course, uh, verse six, here's the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, Adam, with her, and he ate. About 6,000 years ago, everything that was perfect became imperfect. And we have been suffering under the curse of that sin ever since. The other thing that hasn't changed since then is the devil's tactics. He's not changed his tactic in over 6,000 years. He just puts a new brand, a new face, a new facade on top of it. And that's exactly what China is doing with rewriting the Bible. It's the same exact thing Satan did in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden to Eve and then to Adam. Changing God's word, twisting it, questioning it, using it as a way of controlling. Uh, Satan did not come to Eve and say, I want you to worship me. He didn't come to her and say, I want, you to con- I want to control you. That's actually what he wanted to do. But that's not what he, come out, he came out and said. He said, God's holding out on you. Let me help, help you. Let, uh, help me help you, okay? Eat of this fruit. It's, it's going to be better in the long run. You'll see, trust me. And so um, we see that repeated throughout history. Let's look at a few other verses. In Genesis 20, we have the Ten Commandments, right? So in Genesis 22 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In his attempt, and we mentioned this earlier, I just wanted to reiterate, in his attempt to rewrite the Bible, Chairman Jinping is trying to become God. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, the Bible is the word of God, not the words of man. He's trying to usurp that authority. Let's look at a few other verses. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. True scripture is given by inspiration of God, not by inspiration of the Communist Party or by the chairman of the Communist Party. So whatever it is that the CCP will come up with and call a Bible, it will not be the inspired word of God. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. Where? In heaven. No human can ever destroy or change God's holy Bible. It is eternal. So I'm sorry, Communist Party. I doubt they're watching. They don't really give a rip what I think about it. You're not going to succeed you would then have to somehow go to heaven, have a meeting with God, and get permission to change his, his he's not gonna do that anyway because it's eternal. Um, Jesus said in Mark 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. You can take a book, you can rewrite it, 
rebrand it, print it out and call the Bible. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. No matter how many attempts to destroy the Bible that have been carried out, we'll talk about a few of those in a moment. It's never succeeded before. It will not succeed today and it will never succeed in the future. Even if Jesus delays the rapture by another thousand years, the word of God will stand. It will never be destroyed. Uh, Again, a similar passage out of Luke 16. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Jesus is speaking here. One tittle, the tiniest little marking in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, if you will, partial part of a letter is more powerful than the universe. God's word is stronger than the universe. All of that could collapse and black hole come and everything gets sucked into oblivion and God's word would still stand. It's not about the paper and the ink. It's eternal. It's settled in heaven. This is a prophetic passage, but the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Guess what, China? The gospel is already being preached in your country and it's gonna continue to be preached in your country. And when those 144,000 witnesses spread out over the whole globe, they're coming for you and they're not going to be stopped. The gospel will go out. I wanna read some, uh, a part of an article from answersingenesis.org um, as it talks about some of the history of how God's word has tried to be, uh, people have attempted to destroy God's word in the past. Um, This is what it says. God's word survived despite intense efforts to destroy it. For instance, in 175 BC, the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, ordered the Jews on pain of death to destroy their scriptures and worship the Greek gods. But Judas Maccabeus saved the books and led a revolt that won independence for the Jewish nation. Today, Jews celebrate this event at Hanukkah. Failure to destroy the Bible. Another example is the Roman Emperor Diocletian's order to have Christianity outlawed, its leaders killed, and their Bibles burned. Did that work? No. As a sign of God's providence, the next emperor, Constantine, legalized Christianity and paid for 50 new handwritten copies of the Bible. Utter failure. This is from a different source, truthmagazine.com. Uh, moving forward in time to the 1700s, late 1700s, Voltaire, the noted French infidel who died in 1778, made his attempt to destroy the Bible. He boldly made the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence into oblivion. But Voltaire's efforts and his bold prophecy failed as miserably as did those of his unbelieving predecessors. In fact, within 100 years... It wasn't gone. The very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his infidel literature was being used to print copies of the Bible. I love the irony. I love God's sense of humor. And afterward, the very house in which the boasting Voltaire had lived was literally stacked with Bibles prepared by the Geneva Bible Society. Voltaire and all his cohorts had miserably failed. History just keeps repeating itself. Uh, Power, a person, a government, an army rises up, says, we're it. 
We're going to destroy God's word. We're going to burn all the copies. We're going to take it out of circulation. In 100 years, Christianity will be extinct. It, it still hasn't happened. So as, as hard as the Chinese government is trying to rewrite the Bible, I'm sure they're going to succeed in printing out a book that's going to be called The Bible but they're never going to destroy God's word. It cannot and will not happen. Let's conclude this segment with these verses out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures. How long? Forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. God's word is never going to fail. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be changed. It is eternal. So this attempt, this latest attempt by China to rewrite the Bible. It's just one in a long line uh, of people and groups and governments that have attempted to eradicate the true and living word of God. So even with all that earthly power, commander of the largest standing army in the world, he cannot defeat the Bible. It's everlasting. Uh, It's a spiritual truth. It endures forever. It cannot be erased or altered in any way. Aren't you glad? Amen? God's word is forever, and that's why we focus on it here at Union Grove Baptist, peeling God's word one passage at a time, going through the text, trying to understand what does God mean by what he says in his word. And of course, we've been in the study of Acts now for uh, several weeks. There's only 28 chapters in Acts, by the way. So we're getting closer uh, to the end here in Acts Uh, chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to that chapter, Acts 20, and uh, we'll pick up here. Uh, This evening, we'll talk about worship on Sundays. Some interesting things about the way that Luke wrote um, these chapters or this chapter that helps understand that. Young man, Eutychus. Did you guys talk about Eutychus last week? I was downstairs. Did you finish the story of Eutychus? Oh, well, we're going to review it then. Um, uh, And then we're going to see Paul's great love and ministry uh, for the churches. So we're going to pick up here in verse 7, so this will be review. I apologize. Um, But if you weren't here, then you can, uh, it's not review. So starting in Acts 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taking up, taken up dead. So again, review. So I'll try to move a little quicker through this. So they're waiting in Troas for their ship to depart. That's why they were delayed. So they get together for this time of worship on Sunday. Uh, this narrative passage It's not only interesting about Paul's travels, because we're going to see that geographically, the way that he travels through um, the different areas. It also gives us insights into the early church and the transition 
from meeting on the Sabbath to meeting on uh, Sundays. Did you guys talk about that last week? I should have looked at the video. I, I looked at part of it. You guys talked about meeting on Sundays as well? Okay. Well, we're going to review a little bit more than I realized. Um, so also the difference between the Jewish and Roman calendars. So again, uh, Paul spoke to them. So I don't know if you talked about this or not, but um, so here's Paul. He's ready to depart the next day. And he comes in into this upper room and he begins speaking to them. Now the word spoke there, uh, diolegami, is not a monologue. If you can kind of look at that word, what English word is that similar to? Dialogue, right, where people are talking back and forth. So uh, preaching sermons, more monologue type speaking. This is more of a dialogue. So instructional dialogue discourse that frequently includes exchange of opinions. So it wasn't just that Paul was preaching and preaching and preaching and just Paul talking. There was some heavy-duty discussion going on in that upper room. So he was probably doing some preaching, but he was allowing some Q&A, okay, if you will. And so um, probably these believers were asking Paul these questions, probably pretty heavy-duty questions, theological things, and probably required lengthy explanations from Paul. They're probably asking him some of the meatier questions of Christian theology and salvation and sanctification and what about the Spirit, all the same questions that we often have as we read through our Bibles. And so they had been learning from him and talking, and so Paul spends the night, he is supposed to depart the next day. What do we normally do when we're ready to go on a trip the next day? Try to get a good night rest, right? Well, Paul, despite that, takes the time it takes to answer questions, to have that dialogue. Um, Also, in Acts 20, 25, Paul makes a reference to a different group uh, of people that he believes that they will see his face no more. So although he said that to a different group, I think this whole trip on his way to, where's he going, by the way? Who who remembers? Not Rome quite yet. He wants to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there in time for the feast. And he's, he, he is passionate about getting to Jerusalem, but he knows there's trouble awaiting, which, Lord willing, if there's time, we'll get to that. Did you guys talk about that last week? The trouble that he, okay. So we'll get some new, new, um, cover some new ground, at least some of tonight. Um, But he is believing that this will be the last time he sees these believers. So he wants to use every moment he can to help them understand uh, what what they need to know and answer uh, their questions. And again, you you talked about Eutychus um, last week. You talked about the first day of the week. So Again, just as a review, this is the clearest verse so far in the New Testament which indicates that Sunday was the normal meeting day uh, of the church. And so um, Paul stays in Troas for seven days. We read that back in verse 6. And the church met on the first day of the week. Previously, of course, they had been meeting on Sabbath days. The early part of Acts even, they were still meeting on Sabbath days. Why? Because they were all pretty much Jews. Uh, But as... Time went on as the church age is transitioning, which is the whole book of Acts, is a transition 
from a Jewish focus to a Jew and Gentile focus, which we call today the church age, as they're transitioning, they moved away from that Sabbath day. They realized that they weren't called to observe the Sabbath. They weren't under the, the, uh, those type of restrictions as in the days of the law. They were um, under a new covenant under the blood of Christ. And so they chose Sunday um, as, as their day of worship. Um, and so again, he continues after he um, gets there, he continues that message uh, until midnight. Also, and I don't know if you talked about Luke's method of counting days. So we have the Jewish way of counting days, which in the, in the Jewish mind, a day began at sundown and ended at sundown the next day. So it was sundown to sundown. Uh, the Roman um, way of counting the days is like we do, uh, midnight. So at 12 a.m. midnight this morning was the first moment of this day. And so uh, Luke is switching from the Jewish method, sundown to sundown, to the Roman method, which we still observe today. And so, again, these are probably review slides for you. So the first day of the week, again, Sunday. Why Sunday? Why, why, do we, um, why did they start celebrating uh, their worship day on, on Sunday? Well, it was the first day of the week. It was the day that Jesus, what, rose from the dead. So we celebrate that specifically on Easter Sunday. That's the, the day that we really focus on it. But really, every Sunday is a reminder that Jesus is resurrected. Every Sunday when we gather as a church family, we can celebrate. And part of the, and we don't always sing about it. It, it obviously doesn't get preached about every week. Um, it's part of the gospel message, right, that we serve a risen Savior, that his resurrection authenticates that he is God and that we can believe in him. Um, and that we will be resurrected one day. So there's, there's a gospel part of that. But God has given us a lot of other things in the Bible to, to learn about besides just the specific event of the resurrection. So while we don't focus on it every week, it is something that we do, uh, we can think of, we can celebrate. It's, it's Resurrection Sunday every Sunday for the believer uh, as we think about that. And so, of course, the, the account there out of Matthew 28 the account of Jesus rising from the dead, um, the empty tomb, um, the, the joy of the women at the tomb going to tell the disciples who were not wanting to believe uh, what these ladies were saying, of course, and then they run and find uh, the empty tomb. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, uh, Paul here again make, made mention of Sunday. Um, he's, he's writing to the church at Corinth. He's saying, uh, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week that each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections, excuse me, no collections uh, when I come. So again, Paul, it's like he's saying, hey, while you guys are all together meeting, like we always do on Sunday now, um, Use part of your time to collect an offering for the saints at Jerusalem so you can have everything ready for me when I get there. I don't want to have to pass the plate when I get there, I guess is what he's saying. Um, and so this is another argument that Sunday really is the designated worship day among Christians. and answers the question, why do we worship on Sunday? Some choose to worship on other days, um, but we choose Sunday because of uh, multiple instances uh, in the Bible. I also wanted to bring to light this um, 
writing. This is out of the IVP New Testament commentary series. Um, but it talks about this letter that has been discovered. Um, this is not written by a Christian, but it's written about Christians. So I'll just read it. In a letter from Trajan from, I'm sorry, in a letter to Trajan from Bithynia in the early second century. This is about 100 years later. The church has obviously grown exponentially since then. Pliny the Younger, who was a historian as that they have writings from, describes Christian practice. This is the quote from the letter. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verse alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later to take food of an ordinary harmless kind. So this is a non-Christian who's observing what Christians were doing in the second century and uh, talking about it, um, talking about that first day of the week. So it might have been that they even dispersed to work. Um, It doesn't say that they didn't work on this day. It's just that they hollowed this day at the beginning and at the end through corporate worship, celebrating Christ's resurrection, and then the mention of food later, probably um, breaking bread, possibly the fellowship meal that was begun by the observance of the Lord's Supper or communion. So this is a non-Christian describing uh, what Christians did uh, in the second century. So the, the uh, continuation of worshiping on Sundays. Now, you probably talked about the many lamps last week, many lamps in the room. These were oil lamps. So going back now to the upper room, Eutychus is sitting there in the windowsill. Um, these lamps were probably contributing to the atmosphere that um, would put a lot of fumes, a lot of smoke in the air, and it was very crowded up there. So you have all these bad conditions for breathing clean air. Um, the air, was the oxygen was thin. The burning lamps are using up oxygen. You have an overcrowded room. You also have a late hour. So perfect condition uh, for someone to become lightheaded. Um, Eutychus maybe went to the window to get some fresh air and sat down there and just um, gave in to sleep um, eventually. And so um, any fall from a, a three-story window is not going to end well. And, and, of course, Luke, being the author of Acts and of the Gospel of Luke, he often includes different physical explanations for medical explanations as far as what's happened. And so um, whether Luke, the physician, came down and declared him dead, it doesn't tell us. Maybe he did that. But in any case, um, this man was taken up dead. There was no doubt. This was not um, just unconscious. He was not in a coma. He literally was medically dead. Uh, The word for young man indicates he was likely between the ages of 7 to 14 years old. So this could have been a child. You think of the horror of, of anyone falling and dying, but especially a child. Um, and I don't know if, I think it's actually in your notes, the meaning of Eutychus, fortunate. Um, not so fortunate to fall, but of course fortunate uh, for what happened next. So Paul went down, fell on him and embracing him, said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. So after the manner of Elijah and Elisha, Paul embraced Eutychus the young man came alive. So I thought we'd go to those passages. I just have them up on the screen there. First Kings 17, 21 is the account of Elijah. He stretched himself out on the child three times, 
cried out to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. I got to believe this was going through Paul's mind as he, as he did this. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is the one that healed through Paul. Elisha did a very similar miracle, 2 Kings 4, 34 and 35. And he, Elisha, went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house. And again, he went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. I don't know what the uh, significance of the seven sneezes are, but in any case, um, this miracle, again, these miracles recorded um, just shows the continuity of Scripture. God was the one healing, not Elijah, not Elisha. They were instruments in God's hands to perform this, just like Paul was. It wasn't Paul's uh, power in and of himself. It was the power of the Spirit working uh, through him. So notice, though, in verse 11, as we leave Eutychus for a moment, for tonight, actually, we go back to verse 11. Now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. So after the boy is revived, and in verse 12, uh, everyone's comforted. He was taken up dead before, and now he's brought in alive. You can imagine the joy uh, the celebration of this young man's life being given back to him. But Paul doesn't, it's like, says, okay, we're going to bring this kid back to life, and now I'm going to go back and keep preaching again. Does it, it does like he just, he doesn't even break stride, just keeps going. Um, it's just, I think, a, a picture of the total dedication to ministry that Paul had. What a challenge to, to think of this, this man's absolute focus on doing what God wanted him to do. Even this miracle, and it turns out great, I'm sure Paul was celebrating. It, Luke doesn't give us all the emotional things. He's kind of giving us bullet points of things as they happen in the account. I'm sure Paul was overwhelmed with joy. I'm sure he celebrated with them as well. Um, but he goes right back to his ministry mode. Um, the, the breaking bread there, probably a referral to the Lord's Supper being observed. So Paul, remember, he's about to leave them. He thinks for the last time. He spends all night answering their questions, talking with them, encouraging them, um, expounding on Scripture. And then they end that with a celebration uh, of the Lord's Supper together with him. Let's move on. So they leave Troas and, and move on. Then we went ahead, verse 13, to the ship. Remember, remember, they were waiting for the ship to be ready to leave, so they had tickets. They just they couldn't get on yet. Now they, they get on their ship and sail to Assos. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So we'll show you the map here. I don't know how well you can see, but right at the top in the middle is that little orange line. That's the probably the path by land that Paul took. And the green line in the water on the left there is probably the path or the trajectory of the ship as it went from Troas to Assos. Um, the journey on foot would have been much shorter than by sea. It was about a 20-mile walk uh, as shown there on the orange line. If you can, can you guys see that okay up there? I couldn't really zoom it in much more. 
uh, without cutting off the rest of the map. So um, probably he wanted to stay in Troas a little bit longer. Um, He wasn't quite done yet. Maybe they had more questions. Maybe the spirit was just pausing him there. Paul, you need to preach a little bit more. You need to teach a little bit more. Um, So you guys go ahead. Um, I'm going to take the route by land. It'll be quicker. And by the time you guys get there, I'll have made it down there uh, to meet you. And so that's what he does. Uh, Let's go back. All right. So he, uh, verse 14, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. And so, again, Paul stays longer in Troas. He meets them there at Assos, and they take this ship. They're kind of island hopping. We'll go back to the map here. Right along the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, on their way down to Miletus, which is probably where they were looking for a bigger ship to go across the Mediterranean. Those were probably smaller ships, island hopping, taking them along this coastal route. And so um, you can see the line there. Each leg is a different color on this map. Not sure how well you can see it there, but um, as they're sailing there, the voyage to the last three stops there probably took about one day each. So the first part was probably in a day or two and then a little bit longer to get down uh, to the end. Now, the reason they went that way instead of going by land, it was faster. That once they got to that point, it was no longer faster to walk. It was faster to get on a ship and sail. Um, and this gives us a little bit more insight in verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For we, he was hurrying, and here's the verse we alluded to earlier. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So that was Paul's driving goal, was to get there. He knew if they stopped and traveled by land to Ephesus, which um, that little dot that the red arrow is pointing to is um, the city of Ephesus. He knew if they traveled inland or had to take a different route, it would have been longer. And he's trying to get to Jerusalem uh, by the day of Pentecost. Uh, Miletus was some 30 miles by land south of Ephesus. So Paul gets to Miletus. They probably got passage on the next uh, ship to take them down to Israel across the Mediterranean. But again, they're waiting. They're waiting for the ship to be ready to go. It's not on the departure date. So he has some time in Miletus. He really wants to talk to the elders in Ephesus. He really wants to connect with them. And so instead of, in his mind, wasting time going up there, he wants to stay in Miletus. So he calls um, the elders down to meet, uh, elders of Ephesus uh, down to meet him in Miletus. Evidently, his ship had a layover of several days in the port of Miletus. So he's waiting there. In, In verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So the word elder there, presbyteros, is a person of responsibility and authority 
in matters of socio-religious concerns. It was used both in Jewish and Christian societies. So sometimes in the Bible, this word literally just means someone that's older, someone that is of greater age. Um, But in this context, elders of the church is speaking of those that were held positions of leadership within the church. We're going to see these men were probably the house church pastors that Paul had been ministering with back in Acts 19, which we just finished a couple weeks ago. So in verse 18, we have this sample sermon of Paul's. So we might get done a little bit early tonight. We'll see. But we'll spend the rest of our time, I I believe, going through this sermon. Uh, This discourse has three parts to it. So the first part in verses 18 to 21 is a review of Paul's past three years ministry in Ephesus, which we just talked about in Acts chapter 19. The second part of this sermon is a description of the present situation, verses 22 to 27. And then the third part is his uh, exhortation to the elders of their future responsibilities as they go back to lead the church in Ephesus. Uh, The word elder, again, refers to those that had positions of leadership within the Ephesian church. So Paul's taking this opportunity. Remember, he thinks, he believes, he's making this particular journey for the last time. He doesn't think he's going to see these people ever again. Um, And so he wants to use every opportunity to exhort them uh, one final time. Thankfully, God would later allow him while imprisoned in Rome to write a very important epistle back to this church that we we know of as the epistle of what? Ephesians. So he's going to get to talk to them one more time. So maybe some of this sermon had some of the things we read about in the the book of Ephesians. Um, But in any case, we're going to see some of what he states. And so let's start in verse number 18. And when they had come, the elders from the church at Ephesus, they all gather around, they they sit down together. He said to them, you know, that's how he starts. You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So let's kind of break down a little bit of what he's saying so far. So he says, you know, you guys know this. This is not new information, but I want to review it with you. Kind of like what we're doing tonight a little bit. Um, You know this already. I want you to remember this is what he's saying. I want you to grasp this. Don't forget about how things were when I first came. Paul had spent nearly three years in Ephesus, two and a half to three years, teaching, witnessing, and establishing the church. So he's calling them back to remembrance. In fact, this sermon in Acts 20 is a summary of Acts chapter 19. So if you want all the details, go back and read Acts 19 about all the things that happened in Ephesus from when Paul gets there to when he leaves. Uh, The word serving in verse 19 is the word related to doulos. That's the noun 
form of the word, but it means to be a slave or a servant. Paul's calling to mind that slave-master relationship that Paul had with the Lord Jesus. Um, He's reminding them of that. Why? So that he could, you know, like, no, look at me. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus. No, that would kind of defeat the purpose. No longer a slave if you're bragging on yourself. He's merely encouraging them, you do the same. Let's do this together. Let's all be slaves of Christ together. You remember, you know that I was that. Um, he also could have been combating some of the, the antagonists, if you will, that were circulating around, that were um, spreading lies about Paul, that were questioning his apostleship, questioning his authority. So he's reestablishing, not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the word of God. You know that I was as a slave to Christ. You also need to be a slave. It was a calling. It was, I'm setting an example of you by the grace of God, and I want you, I'm calling you to also be slaves of Christ. Uh, With all humility, again, not boasting in self, boasting in Christ. I've set the example for you. Follow me as I've followed uh, Christ. He says, um, notice that tears and trials did not dissuade him from his ministry in Ephesus. Paul went through a lot of trials there. The tears, Luke doesn't record that I recall. Maybe you can correct me. I don't think it records anything in Luke's, uh, in um, Acts 19 where Paul just breaks down and weeps and cries. But apparently he did that with these elders. Why were they weeping? Probably weeping for the persecution. They were suffering. They were suffering. Jesus wept when he suffered. Paul wept over what was going on. Perhaps it was weeping for the souls of the hard-hearted Jews that had cast them out, that rejected them from the synagogue. Perhaps it was weeping over the lost souls of, of Ephesus, the Gentiles that, that were worshiping all these false gods, including Diana, and, and giving all their money to buy all these shrines and, and selling their souls, if you will, to these false gods. Tears and trials, but still they did not stop him from serving, being a slave of of Christ with all humility. So why, again, why did he feel the need to remind them of this? It wasn't to talk about what the great things that he had done. It was to encourage them to continue on. As I have followed Christ, you follow me. Or you follow Christ, I should say. As I have followed Christ, you follow Christ. He wanted to encourage them to continue on. Stay strong in the faith. Uh, See you later, brother. Um, Walk worthy of your calling. Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. All the things that we've seen Paul tell Timothy and other churches is what he's, he's telling them here. Stay strong. Walk with Christ. Don't don't give in. You're also going to continue to face more tears. You're going to shed more tears. You're going to face more trials. Don't give up. Don't give up. Continue on. 
continue being, having that slave-master relationship. Does the slave have a choice when the master tells him what to do? No. There's no choice. There, there's no uh, conversation. There's, there, there's, there's nothing the slave can say that's, that the master is going to be like, okay, I guess we'll negotiate on that. No, the slave-master relationship did not work that way. It was do or die. The master says do it, you go do it. No questions asked. That's the relationship Paul had with Christ. That's the relationship he wanted these leaders of the church to go back to Ephesus and live out. He knew they were going to face persecution and trial. Uh, But he's telling them, continue on as I have. Um, These words I found strikingly similar to the words of Christ as he spoke to his disciples in Luke 22, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said this, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? What had Jesus just done here? Or what was he about to do? Wash their feet. The job of the lowest slave in the house. Is it not he who sits at the table that's greater? Isn't that what your culture says? Isn't that what's ingrained in your minds? Verse 28, yet I am among you as the one who serves Similar to what Paul said, isn't it? I was a slave for Christ. You be a slave for Christ. What did Jesus say? I was a servant. You be a servant. Yet I am among you as one who serves, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Now eventually, in Gethsemane, these men would scatter, right? According to prophecy, right? Let the sheep be scattered. Let them be protected. It was God's prophetic word that they would not be arrested with Jesus. But they did run out of fear. But up until then, they had continued with him. Just as the Ephesian elders had continued with Paul through his trials. So Paul here, and I don't know if he was thinking of this or if this was part of uh, going through Paul's mind as he's exhorting these Ephesian elders. But as I'm looking at this, I'm seeing the parallels here. I'm seeing a Christ-like spirit in Paul, something that uh, we all can uh, try to follow after. And so Paul's reminding them of the trials as he's about to go to Jerusalem and face whatever awaits him there. Jesus is telling his disciples this. He is about to go where? To the cross, right? And he knew what awaited him there. He knew exactly what he was in for. He still takes time to exhort uh, his men. Paul keeps going in verse 20. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he, he says, I kept back nothing that was helpful. I carefully considered everything I taught you. And I made sure that the things I was teaching you were things you could grasp, things you could apply into your hearts, into your lives. And I kept back nothing from you. Paul's saying, I gave you the full counsel of God's word. I gave you every part. 
I shared everything. I didn't, I was not lazy in my preaching. I didn't hold back. I gave you everything. Um, I left it all on the field. I played a couple years of football in high school and in other sports will say this, but I remember somebody saying this, leave it all in the field. And what does that mean? It means don't have any regrets when you come off the field like you could have done something better or you could have worked harder or you could have exerted more energy. And that's what Paul, I think, is kind of saying here. I kept back nothing. I left it all on the field. I put it all out on the table for you. I gave you all the teaching that that the Holy Spirit gave me. I I gave you everything. Uh, And it says, I proclaimed it to you. The the word proclaim is is like making an announcement, making a proclamation, but with detail, sharing truth, and, and then explaining the truth. And that is exactly uh, how Paul uh, preached. Notice that there was a twofold ministry. He taught them publicly and from house to house. So let's, you know, publicly, that's likely the marketplace teaching that he did. Remember back in Acts 19, he started in the synagogue for three months. Let's go there. Let me go back. Acts 19, how long did he spend in the synagogue? If you get it before I do, just say it out loud. Found it. Acts 19.8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, which was kind of a record-setting time for Paul to be in a synagogue without getting booted. But for three months, he preached. Eventually, though, Uh, Verse 9, some were hardened and did not believe, spoke evil. So he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Remember that part from uh, from Acts 19? That's out of verse 9. That's the public teaching. I taught you publicly. I was in the synagogue. I was in the house of Tyrannus. It was an open forum. Everybody could come. He removed them out of the synagogue probably to protect them and to keep them in a, in a context where he could openly teach. He was kind of shut down in the synagogue. His goal, his heart's purpose was to preach the gospel, to preach the truth. So he had to find uh, a way, a channel to be able to do that. And so he did just that, um, going into this uh, house, the school rather of Tyrannus. So that's the, I taught you publicly. And the second part of his ministry, not just publicly, but from house to house. So again, likely these elders that he's talking to from Ephesus were probably those that each pastored a house church. So Paul would go through the city, house church to house church, kind of like a small group, if you will, an adult Bible fellowship kind of a thing, and go down and sit down and talk with them and then discuss things and teach things and, and help the, and teach the pastors. It was maybe a little Bible school going on there as Paul strengthened uh, the local elders in their ministry. So he's reminding them of this. What else is he saying to them when he's reminding them of how he taught publicly and from house to house? That's how they're supposed to teach. I want you guys to keep doing this, what I did. You know that I, I kept back nothing, you keep back nothing. I taught you publicly, you go teach publicly. I taught you from house to house, you go teach from house to house. Keep those ministries burning. Keep things going. Keep it alive. Keep breathing life into it. 
keep going in, in, your, in your ministry. And then he says, his, he talks about his proclamation of the gospel, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks. Pause there for a minute. You guys keep reaching Jews and Greeks. Don't focus on one of the groups. Don't be discouraged when they reject you, when they don't want you in the synagogue, when they don't want to listen to you because they want to worship their Greek gods. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep, you guys keep ministering to Jews and also to Greeks. Notice, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, repentance is that turning, that change of mind toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the positive wording. It's toward, toward God, toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like two sides of a coin. The repentance toward God, the change of mind, the looking toward God and the faith of Jesus Christ, they go hand in hand. I don't believe you can look toward God and not put your faith in Jesus Christ and you cannot put your faith in Jesus Christ unless you're looking toward God. They, they're inseparable. It's, a, it's one fluid choice that, that we have. And so that's what he's exhorting them here. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep sharing the truth. Now he talks about the present tense. So this is the second part of the, of the sermon, verse 22. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Notice that the word spirit in verse 22, is not capitalized. I believe rightfully so. Um, we really need to learn to read our Bibles and understand the text without the capitalization. I, that's, that's a challenge um, because there's not capitals that I know of in the Greek language. I'm not a Greek scholar, so if you are, you can correct me. As far as I know, there's not. Um, so it's, it depends on context as the translators capitalize those words, and this is, I didn't even mean to, mean to bring this up. It just kind of came to me right now, but we need to, and it, this kind of goes with what pastor has been encouraging us to be biblically what? Literate. Um, focus, pay attention to these details. We might read the word spirit and go, well, that's probably the Holy Spirit. They just missed the capital letter there. Well, that, okay, if that's what you think, then pursue the context surrounding it. Try to really understand. Ask the Holy Spirit himself for help understanding the text. I think they, they, this is correct. I also say the same thing about red letters. What if they run out of red ink? How are you going to know what Jesus said? And I'm not joking. I had a, a professor say that, and it's never left me. They're probably not going to run out of red ink, but I'm, the, the point is, we need to understand our scripture uh, with, without some of these things. Really grasp the text. And it causes us to really slow down while we're reading and say, okay, who's speaking here? Where do they stop speaking? Where does the next person start speaking? Can we do that without red letters? Can we do that without capitalization, without quotation marks? That's a challenge, okay? It's a challenge to kind of next level our 
um, biblical literacy. But in any case, getting back to the verse, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. So Paul's saying what he's been saying all along. My spirit, my spirit, my heart yearns. It yearns to be in Jerusalem. I am bound in the spirit. And we kind of use this kind of language, like I'm bound and determined to do whatever. It, it's, it's kind of in that vein. I am totally sold out. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm going to Jerusalem. I want to be there for Pentecost. That's what Paul's saying. I'm bound in my spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know exactly what's going to happen there. But notice in verse 22, now we have the word Holy Spirit capitalized. And again, I think appropriately, I think both of these are appropriate and correct, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So I don't know what the details are. I just know I'm going into trouble. I'm going to be in some kind of danger, but I'm bound to go. Nothing's going to stop me. Uh, And of course, Paul is referring to those that had been prophesying. And Luke records later in in a few verses, uh, some of these prophets that come to Paul and say, look, the Holy Spirit is saying, and I am a, a confirmed prophet of God, and Luke doesn't make a distinction. We believe these were true prophets with the true gift of foretelling prophecy at this time to tell Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested. He doesn't tell him if he's going to die. He just tells him you're going to be arrested. You're going to have tra- chains and tribulations. But he's still not uh, stopping. He's like, I'm, I'm still going. It doesn't matter to me. I am ready for whatever awaits me. I'm still driven to go. Uh, in Acts 16, verse 6, if you remember, now, this is another reason I believe that the capitalization is right. Um, the whole, I don't believe the Holy Spirit is telling him to not go into a city. Uh, back in Acts 16, 6, um, it says, now when they had gone through uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now they're in Asia. Ephesus is in Asia Minor. But at this time, during this particular missionary trip, the Holy Spirit did what? According to Acts 16, verse 6, he forbade them to preach. So I don't think that the Holy Spirit, in verse 23, is telling Paul, don't go. Because we already have a, an example of when the Holy Spirit tells Paul not to go, he doesn't go. The Holy Spirit is just telling him, I know you want to go there, but listen, bud, here, here's what's waiting for you, chains and tribulations. So it doesn't seem that the Holy Spirit is stopping him. It just seems that the Holy Spirit is saying, you're in for some trouble when you get there. I want to conclude with this part because I know our our time is basically gone. Paul was driven in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. He had a hunger to be there for Pentecost. I believe he had a hunger to, and a love for his fellow Jews. And I believe that's part of what was driving him to go to Jerusalem. His face was set to go to Jerusalem. 
much like Jesus' face was set. Luke 9.51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah 50, verse 7, picks up this theme. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Paul's spirit is moving towards Jerusalem just like Jesus moved toward Jerusalem. Only Jesus knew exactly what kind of tribulations awaited him there. Yet he willingly, he, he was, Jesus didn't approach Jerusalem like, oh, like, oh I, I don't know, this is kind of scary. I'm going to like kind of sneak in the side. No, did he, did he sneak in the side door? No, he got on the donkey and rode in through the gate to throngs of people worshiping him. You couldn't miss where Jesus was. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He was hungry for it. He desired it. He, he, nothing was going to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem, from going to that cross. Nothing was going to stop him. And I think Paul, in his spirit, has that same type of heart, spirit, attitude, if you will. I'm going. I know there's trouble that's awaiting me. I'm going anyway. It just speaks volumes to me as far as when we're in situations, we know that we have a hard conversation that we need to have. We know that we have a relationship. We know that we have somebody that we need to talk to about Christ. We know we're going to get some pushback, but we have this driving desire. I still need to go and do it anyway. Yeah, but aren't you going to just get blasted? Yep. Aren't they just going to cut you apart? Yes. And why are you going? Because I have to. I have to because God wants me to do this. This is, this is the plan. I really believe that is, that is Paul's heartbeat. This is God's plan for me. I have to go. The Spirit is just telling me what's going to happen. He's not telling me not to go, so I'm going. And so I'll close with that example of just that dedication, that unflinching resolve to move in the direction that God is calling us to go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, Lord. Um, Lord, he was not perfect. He really was just an ordinary man doing extraordinary things through the power of your spirit. Lord, you've given us no less power than you've given Paul. You've given us no less opportunity. You've given us no less mission. You've given us no less heart to see your will done. So I pray that we would take that battle cry, that we'd pick up the torch that Paul has left for us in this passage and move forward into our lives, into conversations, into relationships, into gospel opportunities with that same drive. Oh, Father, please give us boldness. Give us energy. Give us power. Give us strength. Father, as we conclude, I'd like to also mention and pray for our pastor and, and Valerie, Lord, as uh, the funeral, I believe, was today for her brothers, and uh, for her brother, and I just pray that you would just be with uh, Pastor and Valerie right now. Please just give them 
a great measure of comfort. Please let your Holy Spirit just fall upon them. Help them to feel your presence in a renewed way. Help them, Lord, as they have opportunity to, uh, to, to mingle and to talk with uh, the family there. Perhaps there's some that don't believe. I pray that their presence there would, and, and maybe some of the conversations and some of the things that they have opportunity to share would be a light in the darkness of some lost soul's heart. Lord, just please give them uh, comfort, give them grace and mercy to endure this trial as they grieve this loss. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them back safely, uh, that you would just watch over them. Please be with our church, Lord. Help us to go out in the power of the Spirit, even right now, Lord, as we dismiss. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.